Tara. What the frick is going on? Chris, I feel like this is just standard for your computer these days. Uh, Anna, when you come visit, mm -hmm. I'll introduce you to my gerbils. They run on a wheel that powers my computer. That's where we awesome. are. And they're incredibly <laughs> lazy, is I think what we're gonna we're gonna come to with this. Very lazy. Yeah. Very lazy gerbils. So, <laughs> so. Uh, as, as <laughs> listeners may have detected already, we are learning a new tech platform. And as much as I am happy to see our guest on here already, she was supposed to be hiding out in a waiting room. So she's just going to have to hear us say these words about her uh, while she patiently waits. Um, and since I took this probably right from her website, it's not going to come as any surprise. So our guest today is Dr. Anna Osterholtz, who is an assistant professor of bioanthropology with a specialty in bioarchaeology. Dr. Osterholtz, we'll be calling you Anna, I hope you don't mind, began working in southwestern bioarchaeology with massacre assemblages and has conducted fieldwork and or analysis of remains from the U.S., Cyprus, Jordan, and the UAE, Guam, and Romania. Her current research in Cyprus examines the interplay between populations in the Mediterranean during the Bronze Age and the creation of the Cypriot identity. She is also engaged in examining the social role of violence and how poetics models can be applied to both violence and the treatment of the dead. We'll be talking about all of that, but I, I want to note that the work that we focused on for our questions today come from a recent book for which she is the editor, and it's called The Poetics of Processing, Memory, Formation, Identity, and the Handling of the Dead that was out last year with the University Press of Colorado. So welcome to the show, Anna. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being our very first interviewee guest for our new season, which is what, is this our fourth or fifth season? Since we, we don't actually it. usually number them, I, I don't <laughs> know, but I think it's, it's either the, I was going to say the fourth or fifth, is that what you just said? Yeah, it's the fourth or fifth Yeah, yeah, season. so, yes. For ages. Yes, yes it is, is one of answer. those. Sadly, like, Anna and I were not recording our little conversation before you came on, but she was telling me about this really interesting exhibit that, that she and a, a slew of student volunteers are putting together on hostile environments. Is that what you're calling it, or hostile landscapes? It's Hostile Terrain 94. It's Jason DeLeon's project that he does with the, the Undocumented Migration Project out of L.A. I think that you guys are doing that, that in Tuscaloosa, aren't you? You AAA is the last conference that we went to collectively basically there was the pathway between the hotel and the conference center and there were all these toe tags up on yep. like a fake wall that's what Anna is doing on her campus yeah yeah we're in the process of hanging the tags um, now after kind of corralling a student volunteers over the past few weeks to fill out over 3,000 toe tags and it's been quite moving for, for the students here and for all of us to be involved with it what are the reasons of course that you know this but let me tell everybody else, one of the reasons that we're starting this season talking to Anna is because she's right down the road from me. I'm in Tuscaloosa. Anna's at Mississippi State, which is an hour and a half away. And even though uh, we haven't been able to travel for the last year and a half, we are hopeful that we will be able to travel. And we have a year and a half old rain check on swapping guest lectures between our very close campuses. We share a lot of, you know, there's a lot of connections in time and space and, and academic interests. And we, we would love our students just to have more familiarity with each other's programs and develop the collegiality region-wide that, you know, Kara and I have with Notre Dame and, you know, some, some other programs tend to have with each other. So this is a 
basically the prelude to Anna's talk that I hope to set up very soon on our campus, and I want to go see that exhibit on their campus. So, <laughs> yeah, we, it opens on the sixteenth of the month, and it'll run through Hispanic Heritage Month for us here. Awesome. Yeah, we also have um, Jason DeLeon's coming um, actually to Mississippi State. He should be here. He'll be here on the first of October. So to shift gears a little bit, as awesome as Jason DeLeon is, and we should now totally get him on the show. We start every show the same way now, and that's to get a little bit of information about you and how you got into anthropology and kind of your journey of why you decided to study it, what encouraged you to study it, and then why you decided to choose it as a career. I was actually really lucky. I, I um, moved to New Mexico when my family, I was 16 or so when we moved to New Mexico. And my mother was, I think she would have been a great archaeologist. She was just kind of a frustrated lover of archaeology. And she used to take me around to sites starting from about the time I was 13. So I was that annoying little kid running around on sites, screening, jumping in and out of units, generally getting in everyone's way. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and then when I was a senior in high school, I had a, I had a teacher who, um, he had a master's degree in anthropology. And uh, he, we were talking about it, and he, could, he told me it was a career that I could actually do. Um, so I went down to New Mexico State and uh, got my bachelor's degree and then went up to University of New Mexico and did a master's, um, looking at primarily the Midwest. Um, and then uh, did, went and did for about five years um, and then went and did a PhD with Deb Martin at UNLV. Um, so, you know, I, it, I really can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, <laughs> it's the only career that I know of where I actually get to go and and uh, do two wonderful things. You get to teach students and actually also get to go and play in the dirt. And, um, you know, uh, right now my, my, my research has actually taken me to Eastern Croatia. And so I run field schools in Eastern Croatia, uh, excavating a medieval church and um, the, the burials within the medieval church and made excellent friends and colleagues with a, a whole slew of Croatian bioarchaeologists and archaeologists. So, you know, I, I kind of, I lucked into this and I you know, had support from family and support from teachers who kind of convinced me that, you know, it's, it's a thing, it's a job. <laughs> so, it is indeed. Lucky. They pay us for this stuff. Can you imagine that? Amazingly enough, yeah. And I, I, know, I feel right? pretty lucky about that every day. <laughs> true, true. So the other, the other reason, you know, besides from, you know, our programs being close by that we wanted to have you bioarchaeologists on. We're not bioarchaeologists, but I, until very recently, was the grad director for my program. And as the human remains that used to be housed in the museum here at the University of Alabama have been repatriated, and we have no collections, no human remains collections by which to train students, we have had the, I, I personally have had the issue of trying to find collections students could use to be trained in. And I know there's a, there's a, with decolonization efforts in classrooms and in museums and in our discipline in general, there is maybe the, the practice is catching up with the ethics or maybe the ethics are changing. So I was curious if you could give us a sense of the field of bioarchaeology and how dealing with human remains may have changed in the time that you've been in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I started 
I started college in, in 19, uh, 1996, uh, was my first year of undergrad, and that was you know right when NAGPRO was first being enacted. A lot of the professors were unclear as to how that would really impact us and what that meant. But at that time, you know, we really didn't talk about the, the kind of the structural violence and that is inherent in um, a lot of skeletal collections, whether they're coming from, you know, poorhouse collections or Native American cemeteries and sites. It really just wasn't very discussed. Yeah. And nowadays we, we start with those discussions right off the bat and kind of give that as a background for how we look, how we know what we know. Um, so students understand that the knowledge that they're gaining is actually you know built upon the bodies of real people who didn't necessarily consent to having their bones used for research. And actually that's been one of my big reasons for wanting to work in places like Croatia and Cyprus, where I work really closely with the dissent communities and with the communities in practice. You know, I, I partner with with both of those groups. My, my partner in Cyprus is, um, you know, he's a Cypriot archaeologist and, uh, you know, he and I work together to develop research questions. And, and we, you know, we work together uh, with the museum and with the community at large to kind of serve their needs. You know, what do they want to know about their own history um, and how can I help them to answer those questions? Um, and it's the same way it is for me in Croatia. That's why I chose this one particular, you know, this one particular community because we, we go there and, you know, everyone comes out to visit the site and they ask questions and they want to be involved. And, you know, it, it's, it's a totally different model for how we training students and how we, how we develop collections for research and analysis and for teaching. Uh, because there's no substitute for learning human variation and to learn from human skeletal material. But we need to be able to offer our students the access to that skeletal material in an ethical manner. And so uh, what I did was actually develop the relationships with the community practice in Croatia and um, ask them if they would mind sending us bones. And you know, they're fine with it. They actually sent a letter of assent that came with everything. And then we have 700 uh, kilograms of human remains from Croatia that we're using for teaching. And these are the, the commingled layer. So they're not affiliated with individual burials, uh, but they're great for teaching. Lots of variation, pathology, trauma, all the good stuff that we want to teach our students, right? I say good stuff. I don't say sure. no. good stuff. We, we get it. We get it. Just have to smirk at it. So. Yeah. But it, it's, it's that way they can actually learn and then learn on an ethically sourced um, collection. And it gives us a, a platform to talk about the importance of decolonization and the importance of when we have students that are working with the burials from um, Georgia Sosica, the site that I work at, one museum guys from Croatia sits on the committee. So when we think about the way that we usually run field schools and when we usually run excavations, it's always that top-down approach, right? So the way that we run the excavations over there for the, the bioarc field schools that we run, it's um, very much of a partnership. You know, uh, the site director is Croatian, and so one who decides where we dig and usually he'll start to uncover a burial and he'll call me over and I'll say, yep, that's a right leg. We need to kind of expand out to the left or, you know, this way, that way. Um, but he's the one who, you know, gives information to the students. So that top-down approach actually works remarkably well for us for decolonization. Um, and it's because they're effectively running the, the site excavation. And, you know, I think that if we can teach our students in a framework like that, where they see constant community involvement, they really won't know that there's another way to do bioarchaeology. Mm, true. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and training them that, and I think that that skill set will translate. So, Watch you know, that when brain development. The very beginning. Exactly, right? We don't we present another model for ethically engaged bioarchaeology. Um, and, and so that, I think, is one of the strong suits for uh, actually running an excavation.
all the way over on the other side of the world. I've got a, a couple of follow-up questions with that. And one is like you, you've mentioned, not mentioned, like you've talked actually at length about this partnership and how it works really well. And I was wondering, because we have a lot of younger folks in the field, more junior folks in the field who might be looking at starting a field site or are starting a field site right now. How did you go about, you know, finding these partners and then developing that relationship in a really ethical and decolonized approach? Um, that's not, you know, an upfront easy thing or what's taught, like you said, like you're teaching it to your students now, but I, I can promise you that a lot of people have not been taught that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I wasn't taught that way. You know, I mean, I, I was taught, you know, using um, using skeletons derived from native stems. And it always, you know, it, it always kind of bothered me. It, it's like we're asking questions at people, not with people, you know, <laughs> um, and, and that, that I never really liked that model. Again, I think I, I got lucky and I didn't say no. You know, I think that those were the, the two the two big things and the two reasons that I've been successful in, in setting up these relationships. You know, someone kind of brought up to me when I was a graduate student, there really wasn't too much bioarchaeology that had been done on Cyprus. And, you know, you could go in and, hey, you know how to do commingled and fragmentary remains. We have a ton of commingled and fragmentary remains that no one's looking at. And I just didn't say no. <laughs> so I spent my summers during graduate school in Cyprus. You know, I mean, Jesus, your choices are Vegas where it's 120 degrees in the summertime or yeah. the Mediterranean. Um, and then I, you know, the, the same things kind of happened. I, I was uh, hired by a private company to teach osteology in Romania. I happened to see a random Facebook post from someone in, in Croatia and I commented on it that if they needed any help, you know, I'm around. And the, the, the American bioarchaeologist that that particular group had been working with gave me a good review apparently. And so they got in touch with me and that, that kind of um, spitballed into a much larger, much larger relationship. Meeting, uh, yeah, meeting people like Mario Novak um, at, uh, at conferences, you know, because they always come to U.S. conferences, mm -hmm. um, talking with them about, you know, the little bit of work that I'd done in Croatia at that point and setting up relationships and MOUs. And it, it was just mm -hmm. a lot of time spent you know, actually going there and what looks from administrative point of view to be a lot of wasted time are mm -hmm. just kind of sitting and talking with people and going through the museums and the diplomatic trips. I mean, this yeah. is the thing that like, you know, anyone who does not have tenure yet and is developing a field site <laughs> as I wave, like, this is me that like you, you spend two, three years just developing the relationship before you ever have a product, quote unquote, that comes out of it. And yeah. people do not have a respect for that amount of time and effort. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> and I don't know of another way to get that stuff started, especially no. if you're working in European context, because there's mm -hmm. nothing that replaces that that meeting that starts out with coffee in the morning and then you yep. go and you talk and then you end up getting a beer in the afternoon and suddenly you're talking about writing papers together and oh we have this collection and let me put you in touch with so and so and, and there's no there's no substitute for that and i haven't gotten any publications out i've had a right. couple of conference talks but it's you know, like i'm talking a, to myself here yeah. <laughs> it's just i feel this it, started, <laughs> you know? it is I, I also have another follow-up question and this is maybe gonna push you to give an answer you might not have and if you don't have it that's okay because you made this really wonderful point about you're teaching your students kind of the the right way to go about. Like you're only exposing them that this is the method that it works really, really well. Have you given any thought to what happens once they leave you and they go off into the world and then they encounter a field site that does things in a really atrocious, unethical manner of like, have you given any thought in telling them like, 
ways they can initiate change or who they might report this to and how that might work? Yeah, I mean, we're in a applied anthropology program, and we're actually really pre-applied anthropology program. Um, and so, you know, we, we put our students into internships, um, and we, we encourage them to work with, um, with you know, tribal partners on, on everything. And we've got one NAGPRA grant that was funded this last year, and we plan to go for more of those, because we're in the same process, Chris, of, of trying, to, trying to repatriate as many of our collections as we can. It's time to kickstart that and to start that relationship over again, because we have a lot to learn from each other. Um, and, you know, this, the baggage of the past that we're kind of trying to, trying to fix right now through, you know, kind of having a very transparent and above-board repatriation process. I, I do worry about that. I do worry about the, the students that, you know, that we train in this very, you know, this, this very hopefully decolonized. We work towards it at any rate. You know, we, we, we try. And, you know, we, but being an applied program, we're putting students and we're putting kind of former graduates into positions where they can be PIs, where they at least will hopefully be able to make those decisions and to say, well, why aren't we talking with these guys? Why aren't they in this meeting? You know, and, and to be able to, to be high enough up where they can actually start to make some of those changes. Yeah, That's our goal. I think those are, and it's good we're talking about this. Uh, I've just recently been in a, a meeting that I was asked to participate in maybe two days before with uh, several of the tribes that are affiliated with Moundville here about just a question someone had. And most of the time, maybe one person in the room has an active interest in the research that that you want to do. Um, so th there is so much in, you know, we talk about public engagement, getting the public interested in our research after we've done it, but there's so much that needs to be done to even determine what's worth doing and to get the stakeholders involved beforehand and to find out if, if it's meaningful. That political piece that you talked about, I mean, how do we teach that, right? Learning how to navigate a meeting with administrators uh, to pitch a project, because I think one of the one of the hardest parts is, as as you're both alluding, being junior means you're really nervous. People are going to say no, and so there's a tendency for people to to and and I I certainly fall into this category to to just do things and ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. But this is one of those areas where I got to stay asking for permission is is the better strategy yeah absolutely um and you know we're yeah it's it's an evolving process um you know it just is we're, we're still trying to figure it out and i'm junior too i'm i'm still untenured so you know we're we're trying to, to to muddle our way through as best we can and 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 i think it's important to note like to note that because i, I am much more willing to listen now that i'm tenured because I can go slow. But when you need those publications, that's really stressful, which is what I think Kara is alluding to there. So let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about the same stuff, but I'm, I'm stuck on commingled remains, right? Maybe listeners are thinking like, why are there just piles of bones, right? So can you can you take us through like why there are commingled remains and like why people are happy to send them to you and then what <laughs> what you do with them when you get them? Yeah, sure. So the, the context I'm working in right now is a medieval church, um, and and so that involved a lot of um, particularly upper status people wanting to be buried within the church itself, um, and, and so they would be buried within the church itself, and when they would do that, you know, dig down underneath the floors of the church, they would encounter earlier burials, and so those remains that would be disturbed during digging later burials would just wind up as grave fill. So the way that we excavate them, they get collected as a separate layer and then just bagged because they're not seen as having the same data potential 
as the fully extended beautiful burial in a coffin. Just to clarify, so so someone dug these out and were like, oh, I don't know who the hell these are. So let's just, they're going to be part of the fill dirt. So like when I'm building a house and get a bunch of fill dirt, right? Like it's that. It's just the it, Somebody it, else considered it rubbish, basically. Yeah, it, it's the, the burial fill, right? So they're, they're becoming the burial fill that goes into, um, you know, when they, they put in a new coffin. Um, yeah. And, and the, all this stuff gets bagged separately. And, and when I first started out in Croatia, they were just saying, oh, yeah, and we have all the bones. We, we keep all the, 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 the commingled bones, all of the, the uh, you know, they, they had a, a different name for them. Though. Um, basically, you know, we don't do anything with them. And I said, well, well can I have them? Um, you know, can, can we have them on a, on a long-term loan? You know, um, and, uh, and they were just kind of like, why would you want them? You know, because they don't necessarily see them as having a ton of data potential, right? They, it's, um, it's more difficult to work with commingled remains because normally in bioarchaeology, we start with the physical body. You know, you do everything uh, with a physical body and you have a whole bio profile that you can do. You can look at disease patterning on different elements across the body. If you have commingled remains, you don't have that base unit anymore. Um, and so you have to actually have a, a totally different way of looking at the remains. Um, now, I, I've been doing this for disturbingly long. <laughs> so I was looking at it, and my first field school was in 1998. Um, <laughs> so I've been doing this for about 20 years now, which is terrifying. Um, I don't know where that time actually went. Um, you have to come up with different methodology for how you start to approach these problems, right? So instead of looking at the individual, you kind of are forced to look at a population or an assemblage level analysis of everything. Uh, so looking at frequencies becomes different. Um, how you look at disease patterning becomes different. Um, and, and so the, the big questions that you have for like your standard bioarchaeological analysis based on individuals, they, they, they just change. You know, one of my big research questions is always how many people are there and what are the demographics of? And normally that's, that's not necessarily an interesting question if you're looking at fully extended burials, right? Um, but for me, that, that always becomes an interesting question. And that's the, the demography, particularly massacre assemblages and of ossuaries. Um, can give you really good keys about how people are interacting with the dead and how they're disposing of the dead. You know, the Telebrock assemblage that I worked on in graduate school uh, from the UAE, from Bronze Age UAE, part of the mortuary processing seems to have been the removal of particularly male skulls. We don't know why, but the MNIs are different. They're substantially different for, you know, when we look at the sex ratios for postcranial remains to cranial remains. And without a really fine level of analysis, you don't see what's missing. You don't see what's been taken out. What's the MNI? Oh, the minimum number of individuals. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that, that, that tends to be. And, and, and the reason that they send them to me um, is that they take up room in the museum. Hmm. <laughs> and they don't really want to keep them. So, um, you know, they, they, they just send them to me. Uh, and they're great. So what do you do with them? Do you have bags of bones in your office? I had bags of bones um, and in, in the hallways um, in, and in my office and in my lab. Um, for a short period of time in the hallways until we could get them moved over to the lab. But now I spent the summer with student volunteers actually working on them to get them cleaned up. And now I've put them into a massive database. Um, I developed a database when I was working on this stuff years ago uh, that, that I end up using to record each fragment. So each fragment has a unique identifier. And uh, so now they're in, yeah, now, now they're in um, delightfully labeled boxes Ooh. by element. <laughs> and a database, which, like, I mean, in yeah. in the what we're we're coming up on two years of COVID now, and 
a lot of students are not able to go into the field and work with collections in person. And so having a database with all of that there and readily available, that's really, really big for a lot of folks and really helpful. So bravo to you and the army of students that uh, yes. put all that together. Yes, I've, I've been quite is, fortunate to have the army of students. Is that a thing that... Is that a thing that's possible with your your catalog of bones that you have uh, students who can work from elsewhere and do analysis? Um, they can probably look at the distributions and patterning. You know, we can look at like spatial analysis and, and things like that, or looking at frequency data um, because it's all feature based. So instead of counting like an entire mandible, you count the mental foramen and mm -hmm. the yeah, So you 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 count individual features on things. Um, so yeah, that's entirely possible. And it's also really easy to upload photographs and whatnot. Someone just needs to go through and take the photos <laughs> because I've been on good time for that. Yeah, no, I understand. I have a student <laughs> who I, I had to find a, a collection uh, in the past year and she's looking at photos from the London, no, different, different student. I was like, I the one I took out for lunch this summer? No, no. <laughs> Broke no, leg I, at Notre I have, Dame. <laughs> I have one student who's using uh, online database from London cemeteries and another one that I sent up to Sue Sheridan's lab and broke her leg on Notre Dame's campus. I had nothing to do with it. Actually, she not was on roller campus. skating. I don't think it, it was, was on. on. She was in a park. She was in a park roller skating and like fractured her leg. She was practicing for roller derby. She was ah. on one of those little Neely scootery thingies. Still like, is. The entire, she still is. Oh, oh yeah. Because every anyway. Friday when she comes to lab, she has to call for someone to remember to open the door. Because we. In my mind, she's here. had a broken leg for five years now. That's how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like two months. COVID, five years. <laughs> COVID has removed all of our senses of time. It's really. Okay. <laughs> it like expands and contracts at completely random intervals. I have. I. I just can't. Anyway. Anyway, back to your work. So you know, kind of talking about who these bones belong to and how they came to you and then you analyzing what has happened to these bodies. In the introduction to your book, you mentioned using a three-part model for examining warfare and violence that can also be applied to examine the processing of dead bodies. And you and your collaborator, Deb Martin, note that a poetics approach to archeological evidence of violence differs from a positive, positivist scientific approach. So one, you need to define what those two things are because I have no idea. Um, and then two, uh, what's the difference from the outcome when you're looking at you know these individuals, these dead individuals from those two approaches? Well, really, you know, we're just interested in in, um, in the poetics model. You know, so taking Neil Whitehead's model of poetics, and that's really just a um, looking at how identity is formed and negotiated through uh, public displays. You know, he looked at it from a violence model. So, you know, how we use public displays of violence to kind of negotiate and renegotiate identity. Um, and, you know, the idea is that you can look at this in the past, too. And this is where we're, you know, looking at antemortem trauma comes in. Uh, the patterning of antemortem trauma, like Phil Walker did this back in the 1980s, uh, in 1990s, right? Looking at the, the Chumash and, and Channel Islands materials, um, you know, looking at uh, males have a different pattern of violence than females do, right? So we're looking at different kind of uses of violence. Um, and then I kind of started looking at this as, you know, I, I was using it on Sacred Ridge a lot. And Sacred Ridge is a massacre assemblage that I looked at that dates to around 800 AD from southwestern Colorado. It's all commingled and fragmentary. It's about, uh, oh, 13,880 fragments of human bone that were recovered from a pit structure, two pit structures. Um, and they're completely mixed in together, but there's a lot of very patterned processing. 
And I looked at it for, through the, the poetics of violence model, right? So this idea about performance and, and um, doing this in front of a group to help you know, influence the activity and influence the witnesses who are seeing it, right? And that's kind of the way that this group identity is formed. It forms an us, it forms a them. And then I started thinking about the, you know, looking at this and, and the majority of what I was seeing at Sacred Ridge was actually processing, not necessarily violence. We don't actually know what was happening before or after death. So I kind of started playing around with the ideas about, well, if we can use the poetics model to understand this perimortem violence, then we can use the poetics model to understand, you know, how mortuary behavior can be used to form group identities. Um, and, and basically, you know, by just saying, we're, we're trying to draw a distinction and saying that this isn't necessarily, these aren't universals, that everything is, you know, when we think about a positivist approach, these kind of social universals, it has to be historically and culturally contextualized, right? And, and the, the example that I usually give my students when we talk about this kind of stuff is that meanings can change. You can have the same activity that has very different meanings. You know, when we gender babies, we dress little boys in blue now and we dress little girls in pink, but, you know, kind of years ago that was swapped. So, you know, the same kind of processes are going to have very different meanings depending on the culture and the time frame that we're looking at. Um, and, and yeah, it's, so that's what we mean by, does that make sense? Does that? Well, for poor Kara, I flip-flopped the questions around, like I, I wrote, you know, the end, I, I started with your introduction, but then I jumped to the, the chapter, obviously, that, that you wrote with, with Deb Martin. Um, so, so basically what, if I can re sort of restate the positivist approach is just like warfare peace, right? But <laughs> yeah. a poetics approach is <laughs> the, the lived slash, in this case, you know, the lived experience, but including the dead, right? And I, I, I guess I'm, when I think of poetics, right? I have this layperson's think idea of it. And two, I also think about the different types of funerals that I've been to, right? So we're not just talking about like the funeral, but like how the body is, is dealt with. But one of those in the West is this, is the preparation of the body for viewing, which to me has always been super, super macabre. And then in my family involves the world's most boring and sad funeral where the guy who reads, like it's usually a guy doesn't a eulogy it doesn't even have the names right you know so like this idea that processing the human body can be seen as regenerative and meaningful which you say in the introduction mm -hmm. does not jive with my <laughs> indiana funeral experience and experience of death where we just kind of hide it all away but that is one cultural view so how might processing the human body be seen as regenerative and meaningful all right, so I can give you the example of Hunter S. Thompson's funeral. Ooh, that'd be fun. Uh, so, you know, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, oh, so many. It's okay. Hunter S. Thompson. Of course there are going to yeah. be lots of drugs. Right? <laughs> so Hunter S. Thompson's funeral, um, you know, he, he committed suicide. Um, and he uh, wanted to be, he wanted to be cremated. And um, so the story goes that Johnny Depp paid for his funeral, and it costs at least like $3 million. Right. It made uh, there was a there's an article about it in Rolling Stone. Right. Um, and basically what they did, they built a 160 foot tall tower and put, you know, his personal symbol on there, which is like a fist with two thumbs, you know, um, and uh, uh, had a massive party, just a massive party, a huge celebration of Hunter S. Thompson's life. Right. Music by the Nitty Dirt Band. Um, 
had invited guests huh. to his funeral. They had 10 minutes of fireworks displays, and they shot his ashes out of a cannon from the top of the 160-foot tower. Wow. Right. So when we're thinking about kind of the, the idea about mortuary processes, and, and this is why I really kind of key in on the idea of that mortuary performance, really, because in my mind, that's a performance, right? That, yeah. that is absolutely a performance. It's about celebration, right? Yeah. And it's about kind of creating community. And, you know, so we can talk about kind of the, the um, you know, a, a fairly typical Midwestern, you know, mortuary process, right? That you know what's going to happen. It's it's a scripted performance. You can tell beforehand exactly what's going to go on. And even though it may not be like fireworks, ashes shot out of a cannon, it still is creating that kind of community there, is there, and experiences it at the same time. Um, it's essentially about creating like almost cohorts when we think about, you know, group activities that are gone through at the same time. Um, so for li listeners who may not be familiar with Hunter S. Thompson, uh, like this could be super excited because I grew up reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. Um, he did a study, Hell's Angels, like he yep. was the original gonzo journalist. So this totally, totally makes sense. And now I want to be shot out of a cannon, preferably <laughs> at something cool or somebody. What am I going to do? Just I cause more be... death and destruction with your own death? Yes. <laughs> Is that what I'm getting at? <laughs> I used to want to be bronzed and placed in my family's living room. Wow. But I was worried they would be annoyed and put me in the closet or hang shit on me. And then I couldn't figure out what period of my life I wanted the exterior of the bronzing to represent. <laughs> I totally as want as to be turned into... ashes represented. So oh, it has to be. I totally want to be like turned into one of those tree pods where they like mm. use your body to fertilize a tree as you, oh, you might not actually see it. So that's regenerative. Yeah. Oh, here we go. There's our tree. Huh. Yeah. And you, you, there are a lot of examples like that. The mushroom suits um, that have become, you know, uh, a little bit more common. You know, uh, Luke Perry was buried in a mushroom suit um, after he passed away um, oh, wow, just a few right. years ago. I and, you know, his... he died too. Damn. Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I forgot he died. Um, or, or some other things like Gene Roddenberry. You know, Gene Roddenberry's ashes were shot into space. Makes um, sense. You know, Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy Dewan, the guy who played uh, Mr. Scott. His ashes have been shot into space like four times. Wait, uh, wait, <laughs> did they break it up? Wait, how did they get it back? <laughs> oh. it, they only, they, so there's one company that will actually send them up, and they're in a then they drop back down, and they're recovered and given back to the family. Um, but some they go up and then they burn up on reentry. It depends on how how high they're how high they're shooting them up. Um, but yeah, it's you know Gene Roddenberry's ashes were sent. They were the first ones to go into space, and they were actually taken up by an astronaut as personal effects. Um, you know. <laughs> For those at home who don't know, Gene Roddenberry is the the originator of Star Trek. He yeah. wrote Star Trek. He is Star Trek. So these, <laughs> and, and Luke Perry was one of the stars of 90210. Yeah. We're hitting all of the, the, the old reference points here. Just super um, happy these, I know these things. But these are all kind of mortuary performances that are really very indicative of the, you know, of lives that are lived, right? And um, and they're ways that the people who are in charge of the dead are saying how they want that individual to be remembered. Um, and and that, that's a regenerative act in my mind of, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of creating new memories and creating new community. Um, so yeah, you have the breaking of social ties and, you know, all this to learn about in, in anthropological theory, right? 
um, that go along with death, but there are also new ties that are formed and, and negotiated and things that come out of that kind of thing. So, yeah. So I was going to ask what you do for fun, but it sounds like you got it all taken care of, right? You read <laughs> about how like, various uh, celebrities are disposing of themselves. No, I'm just I honestly, I spend a lot of time reading about this stuff, and I, I've got like a part of a manuscript of a book, looking at me. Um, of course <laughs> like you do. Interesting ways. We, Chris, um, before you got on, Anne and I were talking about the weird rituals people do, like at and before football games, and how it's like <laughs> highly variable from team to team to team. And now we know it's also death, and how you want your death celebrated is highly variable from celebrity to celebrity. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Full circle and, conversation. You know, yeah, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that, that, that really makes me, you know, that, that makes me kind of sit there and start to have very strange conversations with my who's not an anthropologist. Um, <laughs> he just kind of looks at me like, why are we talking about this? I don't understand. Because it'll make an amazing <laughs> coffee table book. That's why. <laughs> it's funny. I put in a, a yeah. I put in a proposal to teach it as a class next semester, so we could get um, burial patterns in the U.S. Oh, so yeah, I, I think it'll be fun. Hey, that'll be a popular <laughs> class. Well, then, other than reading up on celebrity death, <laughs> funereal practices, I'm not sure how to phrase that properly, oh, uh, yeah. what other things do you do for fun in your life? And it can totally be academically related or not, but, like, what's your stress relief? What kind of hobbies? <laughs> what are you reading or watching? Well, you know, we, we actually, uh, uh, I like to I like to do subversive cross-stitch you know i like to make cross-stitch that might be mildly inappropriate in most social contexts. Like, uh, resin jewelry that's fun for me and then my, my partner and i have, uh, we did a covid remodel on a house so i learned way too much about how to put drywall up um, nice. <laughs> um yeah in general we have you know three cats and two dogs that keep us fairly busy and so your website says you're looking for grad students are you still looking for grad students yeah we're always looking for grad students um, okay. And, you know, we, we're also in the process of getting the collections that burials themselves from Croatia sent over so that students can actually do thesis research on the actual burials, not just the commingled remains. Um, it's just taking some time with, you know, COVID and everything else sure, to sure. get that stuff kind of ready to, sh to travel. Um, but, yeah, we're always looking for graduate students. You know, we've got the and we have, you know, we actually just brought on three new faculty members this year. Oh, wow. Um, we brought on a, a cultural anthropologist, a biological anthropologist, and a, and another archaeologist. Fantastic. So um, It's amazing yeah, we in the COVID in... times of, like, no money. <laughs> That's impressive. I know. Or yeah, um, yeah, but we, we brought in, um, uh, you know, Jordan Linton. She does the GIS work, you know, in cultural anthropology. And then we have Tony Boudreaux that's joining us. Uh, and then we brought in Jesse Goliath uh, as a forensic anthropologist who's joining us uh, straight from DPAA over in Hawaii. So yeah, um, especially if people want to work with bio, we, we have people, we've got people now. <laughs> and you did your field school successfully this past summer? You were able to travel we, for that? We did no. not. Um, no. okay. So the last time I was actually able to run that was 2019, but the paperwork is all in. So we should be able to run that uh, in 2022. Okay. Um, yeah, fingers crossed, um, you <laughs> yeah. know, that, that, that we're able to do it. But as of now, the paperwork, and we're just kind of waiting on the final pricing to come through and everything else. Um, but and that's open to students anywhere. Um, and actually, the the way that Mississippi State runs their study abroad, it's quite cool because you end up paying in-state tuition. Ooh. Ooh. So how do people find out about you and your wonderful field school at in-state prices? You know, we'll, we'll we'll have links to the study abroad office. Um, we also have a, a bioarchaeology in Croatia um, that I've posted information and that has links to the application and whatnot. 
Um, but yeah, people are, are, you know, more than, more than welcome to apply from, and I think about half of the people that came out in 2019 with us were actually not state students. Hmm. So, awesome. um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, so it's a wonderful thing. Y'all are easy to cyberstalk then is what you're saying. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um, if you look at our, our, our departmental website, you know, amex.msstate.edu, um, that'll take you to it and, and you can kind of look at all the, the hijinks that we're up to. And I see your hair is is brown again. Yeah, it's not blue blonde. anymore. It was blonde and then blue and then green and now it's brown blonde. Yeah, yeah. It's it, this is this is the natural color, the um, COVID laziness. I've let my gray grow in because it's a pandemic. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> and yeah, there's there's more grayness than there used to be, and um, yeah, it's not an interesting color um, now. You know, once I find out about tenure, all bets are off. Oh um, mm -hmm. yeah. I can see that. <laughs> I can totally see that. <laughs> Anna, this has been a delight. I've really enjoyed delight. getting a chance, like, to meet you and to get yeah. to know you and to hear about in like really wild celebrity <laughs> funerary practices. This not something I expected out of today, but I'm so happy it happened. Oh yeah, it's really nice to see you too.